0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Houndsom.
0: An eye for an eye. You hurt me, I'll hurt you right back. Not the healthiest mindset, but brilliant for storytelling. From the petty fighting of the Iliad to the glorious efforts of Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, revenge narratives have kept us entertained for centuries. Revenge stories are commentaries on justice and fairness, inequality, and human nature. Can we ever wish comeuppance on those who do us wrong without losing a part of ourselves in the process? Or is revenge protected by a kind of righteousness that forgives any and all actions taken in the course of enacting it? Is satisfaction really so elusive for anyone seeking retribution? We are very lucky to have Marjorie Liu here with us to help answer these questions and more, particularly the role of women in revenge narratives. Now, you may know Marjorie from her award-winning comic series Monstrous, her contributions to the Marvel and Star Wars universes, her paranormal romance series, or urban fantasy novels. One thing she has within her incredible back catalogue is a recurring theme, revenge. We are so happy to have you, Marjorie. Thank you for joining us. Oh my
2: gosh, I am so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: And we get to talk all about revenge. Yes, I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I'm a huge revenge fan and I actually studied and did lot, like a thesis on revenge tragedy at university, which was a while back now, I appreciate, but I, I love revenge. So this is quite fun for me. <laughs> Fabulous. So, uh, let's kick things off with talking about how revenge is found in basically every genre from romance to fantasy, cozy mystery to YA And why do you think that people love to read them so much?
2: Oh, man. You know, I think narratives of vengeance feel really enabling to people. Um, As you point out, this idea of an eye for an eye is a really super attractive shortcut through justice. You know, and justice is slow and justice is not guaranteed. And, um, And revenge is a sure thing. And, you know, and I think everyone knows that consciously or unconsciously justice has always been compromised that you know there's a different set of justices depending on who you are where you live how much money you make who likes you who doesn't like you and revenge bypasses all of that and you know the surety of revenge is really it's viscerally pleasurable to watch i think also in a more sinister vein revenge narratives are a way for humans to Experience the power of life and death over others, you know, like it's a way for humans to experience the unleashed ego, which says that you have a right to harm others because you've been aggrieved in some way. A a revenge narrative, like a vigilante narrative is exquisitely positioned to feed uh, what I feel like is a a not so secret desire in people to have power over others and for it to be completely excused and forgiven um, simply because, you know, some wrong was done to you. And, you know, it's a very popularized cycle of destruction that in movies and books can be, um, and is, I think, romanticized as heroic, that that in real life is this incredibly destructive, sometimes vile way of of hurting others. And it leads to um, terrible acts of dehumanization. And, you know, as we see, in some cases, genocide.
0: I like your point about how we kind of live vicariously through these stories, because, I got to say, you know, at least for me and I'm sure many other people, when something crap happens in your life and you just want revenge, sometimes it is so much fun to imagine revenge, even if you know that you're never going to do it. But just the (laughs) the imagining of it is really... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't admit this, but you know,
2: <laughs> I think it's a very human thing, though. It is. I think it's very natural.
0: Yeah. And, you know, not all of us can, you know, write pardons to our friends or, or send people to, uh, well, the federal death penalty or whatever, like Ugh. Trump did. So, oh my gosh. Know, some of us don't have that power to enact our revenge in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to bring the tone down, everyone. But you know, there you go.
2: <laughs> no, well, I'm just listen, I spent, listen, let me keep it real. I spent all day crying out of just emotional, like just this release. Like yesterday, I don't know when this will go online. But yesterday was inauguration day here in the United yes, States. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize how much tension, how much sort of just emotion was wrapped up in my body. And I, I spent the whole day, just watching the proceedings, crying, crying, crying through the speeches, crying through the prayers, crying through the inaugural poem, crying through the White House press conference because it was so competent and professional. Like it was it was this insane release uh, that I did not know I needed to have.
0: And that release didn't come through revenge. It just came through the ordinary workings of
1: democracy. Yes.
0: Yes. Thank goodness.
1: <laughs> A quiet kind of justice, maybe. Yes. But this is a great opportunity to actually kind of move on to the next thing because I really like what you touched on very kind of obliquely before is this idea of the difference between justice and vengeance and the idea of justice being a slower process and not in any way guaranteed. And that's interesting because when we think of revenge, uh, it's often portrayed as quite a negative thing. Justice, on the other hand, is often heroic it's often you know the knight in shining armor's quest is is generally to enact exact justice uh, upon uh, an evil so where is the line that divides do you think a, a revenge mission from a quest to restore justice
2: it's a really good question i think revenge conjures the the energy of a self that is hardening with an inflexible rage a focused rage that speaks of someone who is barely in control, who cannot be reasoned with revenge in some ways is the course of annihilation. You know, it's this idea that, again, that you're justified in harming others in harming everyone, you know, because you were harmed, you know, you are judge and jury, you know, you're the arbiter of, of, of life and death. You have a right to exterminate, you know, you have a right to hurt others again I keep coming back to justification, like you are a vengeful God. Whereas justice, it's interesting with justice because justice can also be fueled by rage and it's no less purposeful. But I I feel like that when when one is seeking justice, one is not pretending to be God. You know, like your sense of entitlement is, I think, contained by the knowledge that there are limits on your power over others and that there should be limits. And and the outcome of the search for justice is not is not always equitable you know like is, seeking justice doesn't mean you're going to get it but the hope is that justice seeking justice doesn't create more harm i think that when you submit yourself to justice when you submit yourself to justice basically you get what you get right it's an act of faith and hope but it's not guaranteed in other words justice is often out of our control and and that's why the notion and language of justice is so entangled with, with the la- language of fate. You know, something terrible happens to a good person and they'll, you know, they'll get sick. Um, there'll be an accident. People will say, you know, there's no justice in the world, right? And I think this is a really important distinction between revenge and justice. It's like, it's the ego versus humility. It's, it's God power versus knowing one's limits. It's, it's rage versus compassion, that said, I I think that what revenge and justice have in common is that they, they almost never give you what you want, which is healing, right? Like in a narrative around revenge and justice, something terrible has already happened. You know, you've, you've suffered an, an awful loss. That's the baseline. And, and deep down you think you'll heal if you get your revenge, if you get your justice, but that's, that's like asking a higher power for a miracle. The actual outcome that one is searching for inside of revenge and justice has to start from, from within, you know, independent of the outcome. And I think we see this most explicitly with revenge narratives. Um, What is revenge, but an inability to grieve? What's revenge, but a stand in for something that's gone missing in your life that you're desperate not to look at, you know, you'd rather kill than mourn. And justice because it moves more slowly means you have more opportunities to grieve the loss you've suffered. That I think that's one of the reasons why it's not as attractive as a narrative.
1: Do you think there's something, um, you know, because we're talking about the differences between these, you know, justice being heroic and, and vengeance being, you know, villainary? Is there something of the kind of vigilante about the the hero who seeks revenge? Because I feel like traditionally speaking we do tend to see the words justice you know and and duty appended to the heroic quest whereas we see the words you know burning vengeance <laughs> <laughs> put to the, the you know the villain of the piece and I just wonder whether you know we we talk a lot on this podcast about how things have changed and how you know um, people are rewriting both heroes and villains to be much grayer characters, maybe just you know ordinary people with with ordinary motivations. But I still feel like this word vengeance. It, there's something kind of like vigilante esque about it. That there's it's where the hero, if the hero is permitted to take vengeance, they kind of have to adopt these, you know, otherwise negative traits, you know, of of the, you know, but we've, of course, we glamorise it, you know, the one who stands outside the law, the one who is outside society, who is, is allowed to operate outside the rules of society, because they are on a quest for vengeance. I mean, is it vengeance that, permits them to be able to kind of step outside the traditional moral boundaries.
2: And certainly it's like, it's a built in excuse basically to do whatever you want for better or for worse. I don't know how, how good that is. It's, it's certainly entertaining, but I think there's a reason why in real life, I don't actually see a lot of examples of, of revenge, you know, of vigilantism of people actually taking matters into their own hands, because it's actually a really, to step outside the bounds of society, to step outside the law, it's a scary thing. And I think that's why we see it most often in, in, in you know, popularized in books and in television, because it's a fantasy. You know, I think what we have instead, what normal people have who aren't characters in a movie is basically unaddressed resentment. You know what I mean? Like, and resentment is something every single person has to battle within themselves, you know, resentment isn't as flashy as a gunfight, but, but resentment and what comes from resentment can have very destructive side effects that, that are, you know, as small as your everyday cruelties, like being rude to someone, you know, or they can lead to broken friendships, destroyed families, murder, or for the example, the storming of the country's capital. And, you know, I've never known anyone outside of a movie who wants revenge, but I know plenty of people who harbor resentment and act on that resentment. And the results can be super devastating. You know, maybe that resentment's justified, maybe it isn't, but the effects are rarely positive, at least in the long run. And so I think that watching a hero on the screen, a vigilante, a Batman, you know, whoever stepping outside the bounds of, of society, it's, it's very satisfying for that reason. But the reality of it is, is a very different thing.
0: I don't want to say I have a theory, but when I watch or read Revenge Narratives, I certainly have picked up on a pattern where you have the kind of villains who tend to be very much those people who are harboring resentment, and it's the resentment (laughs) that fuels them as the villain. And so, yes, it is revenge, but it's also that you can, the twisted innards, you know, and people who listen to this podcast will know that I am a huge Phineas and Ferb fan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think Dr. Doofenshmirtz is the perfect example of this because he's always got a backstory. He's always got some wrong that happened to him in the past. That means that he mm-hmm. must write this wrong and get revenge and take over the tri-state area, you know? And <laughs> I think that does work for villains. But one of the things that I find with when a hero is taking revenge, so say, Something like Unforgiven, which is one of my favorite revenge tragedies. Mm. It's amazing. And Clint Eastwood was an amazing director. And it's really a beautiful film. Yes, it is. But you get heroes like that taking revenge when it's on behalf of someone else. And I feel like they get away with quite a bit more because it's not their own resentment. It's like, it feels like people end up framing it as... That is more just because they're protecting someone or getting revenge from someone who who couldn't protect themselves, and it becomes that inequality thing again about trying to bring justice to someone who was never going to get it.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I actually, you know, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I think for me, sometimes I think a situation like that is a little more is a little more clear cut, but sometimes it feels really arbitrary. Like I, I think about what makes a. I mean, my perennial favorite is John Wick. So, like, what makes a John Wick more heroic than a um, like a, a a Khan Noonien Singh? Like, what what makes Uma Thurman's The Bride and Kill Bill more heroic than Hela and Thor? You know, we're told as audience members and readers, you know, who to root for, and and there's like social cues, right? Like, John Wick is automatically good because his dog was killed and he lost his wife. You yeah, know, it's yeah, it's it's, it's literally that simple. And, you know, and we're supposed to root for Uma Thurman, bride, even though she's a cold-blooded assassin, simply because she was betrayed at the altar. We're supposed to root against Hela and Thor because she's coded as evil. You know, she's got dark clothes. You know, she's got this, quote-unquote, menacing presence. And because her interests are in opposition to the established heroes. And yet Loki is a, quote, hero, despite the fact that he tried to take over Earth and is probably responsible for killing a ton of people in New York City. I mean, it's not logical. But I but I think with revenge narratives, it's not always supposed to be.
0: I like that it's not meant to be logical because at the end of the day, revenge is about emotion and emer- um, yes. emotion is definitely not logical.
1: <laughs> no, it's not. No,
2: not not even a little.
1: I love what you said earlier about, you know, people unable to grieve or forgive Mm -hmm. and it's funny because revenge and the idea of vengeance um and even justice kind of by by default really is a product of i feel like it's easier for us to understand and uh, or kind of hang on to the idea of revenge if we are wronged than because i mean (laughs) It's like the ultimate question, you know, if someone killed someone close to you, could you ever forgive that person for killing someone you loved? And, you know, forgiveness, even though it's become a bit of a cliche to say it, is the hardest. It's one of the hardest things to do. And the grieving process is is painful and awful. And I I sometimes, and there's no glamour in it. There's no glamour, really, in the idea of 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 this long, painful process or the idea of forgiveness, we especially the way that, you know, like Hollywood has sold us these sensational films. Everyone buys into the narrative of vengeance because it is something that, it's like a neurofen, you know, it puts off the pain yes. of, of what has happened yes. for indefinitely. If you keep on taking it, it can indefinitely postpone. Are you actually having to deal with it? Uh, and I feel like, you know, maybe many, many people... We'll never ever be able to deal with it because I and I don't think I could include myself in this. I mean, it's I luckily haven't been in this situation, but I think it, it would take a remarkable person with an enormous soul to be able to forgive, you know, a wrong, a murder of a loved one, for example. I think that would be really, really difficult, and maybe we aren't so good at addressing that aspect in our in our you know, creative mediums.
2: Well, I, I don't think we are because I think that the the slow, painful process of forgiveness is so deeply internal. Like there's no real good way to, I mean, there are ways that one could dramatize grief and there are ways that one could dramatize forgiveness, but really it's about an expansion of the soul. It's about a deepening of the soul and and the self and going through the stages of fury, going through the stages of grief, going through sort of the, you know, all these stages of, of helplessness and reconciling yourself to the fact that fate, life, you know, whatever has handed you something really shitty and you've lost something precious that can never be returned to you. And so how, how do you move on from that? Like, and it's a very you know, it's, it's, again, It I don't know if it makes for good television, right? It's not, it's not like, I think even reading about it would be, you know, really, you know, hard to do because it's such a, it's such an intimate individual thing. You know, one person's grief is not like anyone else's. One person's journey towards forgiveness or hate is unlike anyone else's. And that the transformation that has to happen within oneself when they are opening themselves up to sort of like the, like forgiveness, I think for some people can be really scary and it requires, it's very hard work and I, I, it requires a transformation. It requires hard work. It requires, I think, choices that have to be made every day, every, every minute to not hate and to not succumb to anger to not harden into bitterness for your loss it's not something that happens quickly it's slow and agonizing and i think that i wish we had more depictions of that but again i think it would be it would be very difficult to do i think this is the reason why people go to therapy <laughs> this is the reason why people go to church you know because there are more narratives there are tools one can work with and there are narratives of forgiveness that are not available elsewhere.
1: I completely agree. Um, and I don't think, I think what's really interesting is this, this idea of, um, you know, obviously everybody is an individual. They have to deal with, you know, these, these difficulties and these grievings and and forgiveness in different ways. But I just wonder whether because of that, is there something More universal about the idea of revenge or vengeance than there is about the idea of personal grief is is the idea of uh, you know the the many avenues that people take to express grief or go through the process of grieving. Is that less universal than an idea of vengeance? You know,
2: I think I think grief is I think grief is universal. I think that we all. I mean, here is the wild thing, right? At some point or another we are all going to deal with loss and we are all going to deal with a loss that, that cannot be fixed. There will be no remedy for it. It is inevitable like that. I mean, as much as we are all fated to die, we are all fated to deal with loss. And I think that the, the vulnerability that that creates in us, is something that is very difficult to even contemplate. I think we would rather ignore it and replace it with narratives of vengeance than actually think about how vulnerable we are to loss, to grief, that this is an an inevitability. And it's a scary thing. You know, it's a terrifying thing, really. Far better to, to think about uh, shooting your enemies, you know, in a in an endless two-hour gun battle, then think about sitting still long enough to contemplate one's mortality and the mortality of, of of those you love.
0: Oh, completely. It's something you feel like you can control. Yes. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit about how even when we have heroes, you know, and as you were saying, when say a hero is also they're on a path of revenge, but we still manage to find them a sympathetic character. We're still, you know, coded as the audience, as the reader to empathize with them. Are there things that those heroes can do that just kind of, it's like, that's a no-go? Like, okay, if John Wick had then gone and killed someone else's dog, he would have been like, man, I'm just, I'm not okay with you anymore. I'm done. I'm done with John.
1: Yeah, like how much can vengeance, for, you know, forgive? <laughs> well, yeah.
2: you know, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, there's there's all these narrative codes around innocence, you know, and it feels like those usually involve family and you know, the domestic and the reasons for revenge, right? You know, it, it also depends on how the bad guys, the bad guys are coded as well. And that villain code is really not that complex. You know, it tends to rely on stereotypes. You can get like really fucked up really fast, particularly when evil is presented in a racialized form and so like this shit isn't rocket science it just totally relies on bias and common cultural codes so i mean you could literally tell a revenge story in four panels of a comic with no words and the reader would be biased towards the hero without knowing any details right like you know panel one would be a man with a happy family shit panel two would be like a family murdered or horribly harmed panel three would be like a man kills nameless, faceless others. And then, you know, the last panel would be like the man stands at the grave of his family or stands with the recovered family and like the end. And the reality is like people like monsters when they're killing for a good reason. And if you are coded correctly, then I think people will will make all kinds of wild allowances for a vengeful hero, you know, if they're presented in the right way. I mean, I think, again, about Uma Thurman's, like, the bride. And, you know, I can't remember the name of the, the woman she's fighting, but, it, you know, she's fighting a mother whose child is in the house. And that's somehow okay. And we know, for example, in John Wick, we know the bad guys are bad because they killed a puppy. Mm-hmm. Never mind that John, you know, like, listen, I love, I love John Wick, but never mind that he goes and then, like, just, you know, basically goes on a murderous rampage through the city. You know, this all, this begins because someone kills a dog. But, but again, it's it's coded. We're supposed to be furious at that. And that somehow is supposed to justify a tremendous loss of life.
0: Do you think it's easier to position the reader, the audience, to feel sympathy when it is that kind of rage, grief, fueled kind of chaotic revenge as opposed to you know the dish best served cold because if it is sort of premeditated and planned out revenge is it harder to actually portray that of a hero and have them remain the hero you know i think the pitfalls are the same i mean certainly i certainly the
2: the, the reader and the viewer is is you know we are trained to be more accepting. But I think that at the end of the day, if we're really talking about the root of these narratives, each one prevents mourning. Each one is a distraction from reflection and healing. Like unpremeditated rage is cleaner in the sense that it's a spontaneous explosion of emotional and physical energy, sort of like a volcano. But like, then what do you just double down on that unpremeditated rage and and let it harden into something cold and calculated? Or will you mourn? You know, I, I think about the crow, which is, I think, a movie that does that well, where we have these outside characters who remember Eric Draven in the before times, you know, who keep him focused on his humanity and his grief and not just reve- his revenge. But I think, you know, cold calculated revenge, I mean, honestly, I think they're about this. I mean, I know they should be different, but I think ultimately they, they're, they have the same result. They have the same result and they have the same you know, the same root cause.
1: And I was just thinking about actually the, what Meg was saying about the dish best served cold and the explosion of, of rage. And it reminds me of the, in France, they say it's a crime of passion mm-hmm. as opposed to premeditation. And I think, don't quote me on this, but I, I feel like that carries a lesser sentence than premeditated murder. But what if, well, yeah, What if? what if the outcome's the same though? you know someone is yeah, that, someone is that's the same
2: exactly exactly <laughs> you know it's all it's this idea of, of your intention right that somehow if you if you uh premeditate you know if you were cold and calculating you plan someone's murder that you are somehow more evil you know that that you intentionally cause this person's death that you at any point could have stopped you could have stopped yourself right and, and just say, you know what, I'm going to make a choice to not do this. But instead, premeditation means that you just double down. Like you just kept going and going and going. And you continuously made the choice to not stop. Whereas when you just explode with rage, when it's quote unquote a crime of passion, there is no, the assumption is that there was no, there was no choice to be made. That the moment between your rage and your action Uh, was so small that you just, you just didn't even have time to make a choice to, you know, that you just, you just exploded and the person was dead. And so it's that in some ways, that lack of continued, that lack of continued choice, right. That makes the difference, you know, because you're not, you're
1: not taking
2: the time to really think about this.
1: So thinking about cycles of revenge, um, you know, obviously, a really famous example is like the Montagues and the Capulets from Romeo and Juliet, where they simply just keep on killing each other because nobody can sort their shit out. <laughs> so Shakespeare, um, but so Shakespeare. this is really a, it is Shakespeare. Yeah, he makes for better drama, right? You know, instead you sort of star-crossed in love against such a dramatic backdrop. Uh, (laughs) but this is common you know these these this idea of, of like endless vengeance with no resolution is quite common through history and literature so can these cycles ever be resolved without a terrible tragedy because i mean like you know, they, Shakespeare takes pains to say that it it was only the death of these two young people whose futures were so bright and promising that brought the two families, you know, to their knees and brought forced peace upon them. Is there any other end to this story?
2: You know, it's difficult because a tragedy has already happened, right? Catalyst of revenge, the original harm is a tragedy. And, we've talked about this a lot like revenge by its nature is a narrative of continued tragedy and harm you know the only way a revenge narrative could be resolved without tragedy i think uh would be if the protagonist recognized their limits and contained their rage and and chose to pursue an outcome that creates space for forgiveness (laughs) and healing and you know i i think about the count of Monte Cristo*, which is an example i think of this you know one in which revenge is planned and carried out but but the character quite literally examines his actions like at the end and contemplates the integrity of his soul you know in the aftermath and and i think the gladiator um the russell crowe film isn't so bad either in this regard because the the focus of the revenge is entirely contained and isn't the full focus of the narrative like there are other things at stake that are more important than the main character's desire for revenge. And, and Maximus shows restraint, you know, he doesn't allow his fury to take away his reason. And so, I mean, his loss is tragic and he does want revenge, but he's also able to master his grief to make the world better for others. So, yeah, I mean, the answer is no, there's going to be tragedy, but can it be resolved without more tragedy? Or contain tragedy? Yeah, actually, I think it
1: can. It's like the idea of tragedy being the progenitor of vengeance, but also the child of vengeance. (laughs) It's a horrific idea.
0: Yeah, for real. (laughs) It's awful. It's actually awful. We are obviously um, a feminist, an intersectional feminist podcast, and we like talking about women and our place in storytelling and often how we get left out or downtrodden pushed aside yeah get the the sharp end of the stick all right you left out fridged oh my god (laughs) 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 but when it comes to revenge do you think that is there anything like are men able to get away with more in revenge than women are are there different kinds of wrongs you know or harm done that cause a a man to go on a, a revenge spree than a woman Oh well yeah. There's a little
2: crossover, but I, you know, I feel like revenge narratives for for I mean, okay, let me just put it this way. I feel like for revenge narratives for both men and women, both tend to involve the um uh, the unraveling of the domestic. Like not always, but most of the time. But for men For men, it's, you know, it tends to be like a murdered and or like sexually violated wife or girlfriend, you know, murdered children, like family who've been kidnapped or sexually harmed. And for male protagonists, like the harm typically hasn't happened to them, right? But it's all about them, if you know what I mean. And, and the harm, the harm always feels like it it sort of undercuts a man's masculinity. Like he couldn't protect his family or his partner and, and sort of the act of revenge allows him to, um, reconstitute his manhood. And I think also it, it perversely, it frees the male protagonist from, from domesticity. You know, it allows him to, to go on this adventure. And, and, you know, even more perversely, his act of revenge, quote, like on behalf of a dead partner or child signals to the viewer that he's a, a good man that we can root for even desire. And that's that's weird. Like, it's weird that, you know, all these male heroes who are killing machines are also coded to be desirable. Like, we're meant to be attracted to these dudes despite of and, and because of their prowess as murderers. You know, and I think what's interesting in, in narratives about women taking revenge is that it's usually for a harm that's happened directly to them. You know, specifically, and not always, but But a lot of times, like some kind of terrible sexual violence, you know, or like alternatively, like a a harm done to a child who is just an extension of the mother or the female figure. You know, at the very least, there's there's typically an abuse of some kind. And as with men, it like it, it tends to lead to an unraveling of the domestic. But you don't see films where a husband gets raped and his wife goes on a killing spree or where a man gets raped and takes you know his revenge. You know, that's still taboo. You know, it's the woman's job to be raped and it's the woman's job to kill her rapist and therefore reclaim herself, you know, or it's the man's job to do it for her and reclaim his masculinity. And, you know, it's really disturbing. And I I think it's really rare to get revenge narratives where these aren't the storylines. I mean, like, I guess, you know, again, going back to John Wick, John Wick's an example in that there's no sexual violence against women in the film or in the original tragedy, but it still involves a dead wife. You know, she's dead from cancer and not a bullet, but she's still dead. On the other hand, however, hey, like you have a film like 9 to 5, like the Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda film, which is a is a favorite of mine, which is kind of a borderline revenge film, but without any murder. And it's it's joyous, and it's funny, and it's positive, and it's all about the empowerment of women and the solidarity of women but i think that's far more unusual
1: i was so glad you pointed that out because it is totally true this and and you know like the, the so different shifts of of what go what causes male and female characters to go on these these like, revenge trajectories that it is so very often about the, when it's the man this loss of domi- domestic bliss in a way and, and what's so freaky about it is the fact that you know very often they meet and they meet another woman on their quest and maybe (laughs) more domestic blitz in the future and and
2: she'll probably murder too because like you know 10 minutes after like his wife is horribly raped and left for dead like suddenly he has like a female partner in crime who's really hot and you're like oh you know this is going to be his happy ending how he's going to heal and i'm like bullshit like that is a load of crap
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it. I just, see it so much. Do you know, what? I was sitting there, it was really sad, but I was sitting there thinking, can I think of an example where a woman's partner, I'm absolutely sure there is one. I, I feel like I've read it or seen it. But
2: I feel like there was a Jodie Foster movie. What was it called? Where like she's walking in Central Park and her husband or her partner gets either like murdered or like, I don't know. And then she goes on, on a revenge spree. I feel like it's a Jodie mm. Foster movie, but I really can't think of hardly any others.
1: No, it's really hard. I was thinking, I'm sure I've seen, but maybe not, you know, because we're so conditioned to see it the other exactly. way around. But it's something that doesn't occur until you sit down and actually think it through and go, Oh fuck, you know, like this is literally happening again and again. And it is almost always like you said, um, the harm done to a woman is done to herself, yes. her body you know, or an extension of her. And rather than this sort of, sort of like, Um, And and I think that's, you know, that's the patriarchy talking. That's, you know, like, what what can you do to harm a man the most? It's not to attack his body. It's to attack his sense of masculine identity. (laughs) This
0: is really sad, but I've never actually seen Carrie or read Carrie. Oh, Carrie. Oh, man, Carrie. (laughs) But I was just trying to think, because that is a, you know, an iconic depiction of a woman getting revenge
2: yes and for being for being bullied for having just kind of like you know just this you know she's just just life is shitty to her life is really shitty to carrie and alas you know for everyone else they should have been a little nicer because carrie really fucks their shit up
0: (laughs) but that that's an example like do we see that is bullying her not enough to justify revenge? Or is it just that it's completely out of proportion with what she's done? Well, I mean, the thing
2: with Carrie is that she's a force of nature. Like, I've actually always felt deeply sympathetic to Carrie, because she is a teenage girl who has this incredible supernatural power that is beyond her comprehension, beyond the comprehension of anyone else. And she is the stressors of her life are too much for her. And she explodes with this power. She explodes with this, this moment of rage that devours everyone around her. And I have so much sympathy for Carrie because how often have we all been in situations where the rage that is inside us is so, is so powerful that if we had the, if we had the ability to set people on fire, we would just by looking at them.
1: Oh, I really want to set someone on fire. <laughs> 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 I'm not a violent person, um, but as you were talking, <laughs> I, I was just thinking, oh my God, I've just remembered where I've seen the, the woman whose husband is killed and she goes on a sort of oh, what is quest it? to revenge. I literally just read it. It's um so book came out two days ago. Hall of Smoke by H M Long, oh, Hannah M Long. Um, it's I literally just okay. read it, and I, I, I. It's like she literally in the first chapter, her husband is is killed, and her cousin is killed, and pretty much all of her friends and family are killed and she has to go on a quest for it's it is sort of a revenge quest but it's kind of more about herself and understanding her kind of place in in you know and and, and actually understanding her god because um it's a bit about like the idea of faith and doubt and finding out your god is really not a great god right. at all. so i just remembered i knew there was something i'd seen recently and it is her husband is totally fridged okay in the first Man, it's time
2: for me to, time for me to get reading <laughs>
1: So I thought, wow, that's actually a, a, you know, when when it happened, I was like, oh no, it did strike me as quite unusual. Perfect. Well, another example
0: would be true grit as well. Um, Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's, it does happen. It's just a lot more rare. Yeah. But I was also thinking about, you know, not that this is this has become the, the John Wick episode, but I also love... So, I am so sorry. I, I, I love a bit of John Wick too, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> but I was wondering, like, if, if it was actually Jane Wick, would we have been okay with a woman going out and fucking murdering all these people after someone killed her dog? Or would they just be like, oh, honey, it's, uh, like, get over it. Like, oh, come on.
2: That's a really great question. I, I actually don't know. I actually really don't know. Now, if someone had gone and murdered her child, you know, maybe. But I would like to think the answer is, is yes. I mean, I certainly would be okay with it. But I don't know. I don't know. Because of the expectations we have for women and sort of their, their place and the limits of what a woman's rage should be. We are um, trained to accept that there are no limits on male rage that male rage can can just explode and not be questioned whereas I think female rage not so much you know I, I think that the uncontrollable fury of a woman is something that we still don't have enough examples of you know we still don't have we're we're not trained I think to... To believe in it and rejoice in it and and revel in it in the same way that, that we are with men.
1: Oh uh, yeah, I love what you just said about the you know uncontrolled fury of a woman because when are we ever allowed to see it full stop like without any sort of commentary or framework of you know of, of some sort of negative framework of like oh well you know um, I feel like there is. I think I feel like male fury comes with justification. That we that it's somehow allowable. At the drop um, of a hat. Because, but know. like at the drop of a hat, right?
2: Whereas I think that like the the justification that's required for female fury, there's like a there's a higher bar that has to be that has to be met. You know, with male fury, I mean it's you know, it's the killing of a puppy. I mean it's terrible, don't get me wrong. But that's, you know, like for a murderous rampage, oh, no, okay, uh, you know, I, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, um, I I don't know. It's, it's, I think, I just think that, that the standards are much higher for women.
1: Yep. As in most things, sadly. Yes. <laughs> At least it's a double standard if, we, if it's not mm-hmm. higher. It's certainly a double right. standard. Right. I love this chat. but
0: uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your own writing and maybe what things you love, particularly writing about revenge tragedy, and maybe oh sorry revenge. i'm all, I'm all mm-hmm. about revenge tragedy. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but maybe like your favorite stories that you've written about revenge and like why you wanted to to write those stories in particular?
2: Well, you know, I think I think about, for example, with monstrous, Monstrous begins as a revenge narrative. You know, in the first volume, you know, Micah, she begins Monstrous um, seeking revenge, you know, you know, ostensibly, right? That's, that's her operating story. Like she, she's like, I, you know, I'm seeking revenge for the murder of my mother. But, you know, but the revenge is really just a cover for how massively incapable she is of, of mourning and admitting her fears of who she's becoming. You know, she'd rather be angry than actually get to the root of that anger, And I wanted her anger to be physical. I wanted her anger and her fury to be straightforward. I wanted it to be um, portrayed as a kind of hunger. Because I think that what's interesting about women is I think women have routinely been associated in the Western tradition with like vindictive emotions and like, you know, but ones that involve their cunning, right? Like as opposed to outright violence, you know, the acts of like when a woman takes revenge, it's it's usually more socially complex than with men. like they use gossip as a weapon or the supernatural like they you know like curses or they seduce and and I think that these are typically painted in a very negative light, like a you know a woman's vengeance isn't seen as a positive thing, more like this descending evil. And I wanted Micah to have this like very straightforward you know, revenge narrative, but that one that's couched in grief and I, grief and, 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 fear, you know, and I, I think part of, you know, her journey over the last six arcs, um, has been that realization, you know, she's, she's finally beginning to grow up and realize that she's been lying to herself. This anger that she had, you know, this, this uncontrollable sort of just nastiness, you know, the way that she would push people away was, was fear. It was fear and it was grief. And, and now, you know, she's ready to stop lying to herself. And that's really difficult. You know, it's really difficult to be honest about who you are and and what you feel. And that can create a whole other set of problems, right? You know, it's not like you suddenly, you know, like, oh, I have, I have mourned my grief. (laughs) And, and now that, you know, I shall have my happy ending. No. No, no, you know, grow, no, growing up creates new demands. You know, when you are no longer in a tantrum state, suddenly you have clarity to see the world around you and the actual problems that you have and what actually matters. And that creates new responsibilities that you could ignore when you were seeking revenge and being angry all the time and pushing people away. And, you know, now you're like, oh, shit, like, oh, I, I, I got to actually like, I got to actually like live my life. And that's hard. Yep. But that's, but that's part of the journey of Micah in Monstrous. And that's part of this idea of this revenge narrative, working through its cycle of, of anger and fury and fear and, and avoidance and working through that and coming through it and realizing, okay, well, shit, <laughs> you know, if I'm not going to be angry all the time, I guess I got to be constructive and that's going to be a pain in the ass.
0: And a long therapy bill, but maybe that's just me. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, she owes Kippa the, the, the like the deepest the deepest therapy bill ever.
0: <laughs> Honestly, I'm a huge fan of monstrous. Um, like, oh, thank you. Is it weird to say thank you for writing that? Uh, <laughs> oh,
2: really that's really it. kind of you. Oh, thank you.
1: It's never weird to say thank you for <laughs> writing something.
2: I really appreciate that. Thank you.
1: So later this year, you've
0: got a new collection of short stories coming out, The Tangle Root Palace. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well, it's interesting because I talk about this a little bit in my introduction to the the collection, but I've been writing professionally now since 2004, my math, 16, 17 years. And I always – I have this weird amnesia around my work. So I'll finish something. and. And then it's just kind of gone from me. Like, you know, I'll, I'll finish writing a book or a short story and then I just move on to the next thing. And I, I have, again, I tend to forget my body of work. You know, the idea was brought up of putting most of my short fiction into a collection. And I was like, eh, I don't, I don't think there's enough. And I went through and I was like, oh shit, actually, <laughs> I guess, you know, I guess I have been writing short stories for some time now and it was very weird not in a bad way but but just sort of just uh, informative i guess to go through and and look over these these stories that i've written over the last 16 years because they're thematically they all deal with with individuals who are in different stages of becoming their i want to say becoming, in some cases, becoming their better selves, of grief, of sort of learning how to heal from sort of their, you know, the traumas of their past. They deal with love, with hope, but but really, you know, these are stories about about people who a lot of them have suffered, and and they're trying to heal from that suffering and come through on the other side, become free from that suffering to become you know better people and to become more of themselves and it was just it was an interesting thing for me like going through and 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 sort of you know looking at these stories and and seeing how they hold together as a whole i never imagined that that they i would you know that these works would ever be collected into one volume i'm really grateful for it uh, very appreciative Yeah, yeah. And it was, like I said, it was a very interesting thing to look back on these stories and and see them as reflections of also who I was at different stages of my life.
0: We're very excited to read it and we hope that all our listeners will be also very excited, pre-order and support the authors by pre-ordering always and support your local bookshops and all those (laughs) other (laughs) things. Yay. (laughs) But thank you so much um, for joining us. It's been really fun to ch- chat to you um, all about revenge.
2: Oh, you know, it's, I, no, I, I actually, I, I really appreciate it. I, you know, I really, really appreciate it. And it was a, it was a great conversation. I mean, this is, this is like a perennial favorite of mine.
0: Yay! <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsome. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.